I want to talk with you about change this morning. And uh, change, it's, it's a really big business. Last year, you're going to see it on the screen, $41.8 billion was spent around the world on the idea of personal development. If we split the profit from that, $41.8 billion, it would be that everyone who came last week, plus all those people who turned in to tuned in on the live stream, we could cut you all a check for $59 million. It's a lot of money. It's almost enough to buy a house and a tank of gas in Barrie right now. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a big number. And it suggests that there's a lot of interest in this idea of change. On the screen, you're going to see how this interest broke down in, into five categories. Clockwise from the top, the dark purple is mental health. People were interested in changing something about that. Blue beside that uh, for motivation and inspiration. Light blue for physical health. Light purple for self-awareness. And then medium purple coming back to the 12 o'clock position for skills. Now, if you took out that 12 o'clock position, that big purple piece of pie out there, for the skills, you'd be left with two-thirds of the things, two-thirds of the money that was spent on areas that the Bible specifically addresses for free. Right? That's pretty cool. So, for instance, look at what the Bible will say to us about change or transformation or renewal or personal development, if you will, in relationship to faith in Jesus Christ and thinking. Okay? Look at Romans 12, too. These will all be on the screen. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Colossians 3, 9. Do not lie to one another. See that you have put on off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And then this one's the gem, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone, any person, any woman, any man, any child in this room, anywhere, if they are in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the Bible says a lot to us. God has said a lot to us about change. And it comes to us for free. So we're not really interested in how much was spent on change. What we want to know is how do we change? How is it that a faithful relationship with Jesus Christ can change me and change you into better people? How do we get changed for the better? We do that by paying closer attention to God's word. It teaches us about change. Change comes as a result of being in Christ. And Jesus changes people more as they put their faith in him, as they come to him and, and ask him to, to accept their faith. They come to him in repentance for sin. They come to him looking for that new life, and he changes them. He makes us new creations. That's his grace to us. He changes me, and he's changing you. And even though he has graciously changed us, even though we are made new, he's not done. We are all sitting here in a state of renovation, we're still being made over. We're still being changed. And if, we had, if we'd be honest with ourselves, sometimes when it comes to making change, we are, we are stubborn. We don't want to do everything that Jesus wants us to do. We don't want to cooperate him. It's like when you renovate your house and, and the uh, contractor comes in and he wants to move a wall or, or she wants to redo the carpets or, she, or they want to do something different. They're like, well, hold on. I didn't want all of that to change. I, I didn't want all that to come, come through yet. I just wanted a little bit of change. And we're hesitant. 
So we need motivation to change. And if we look at 1 Peter chapter 4, I think we're going to find it. Because there we find this powerful set of instructions and, and stuff written to a church that was facing persecutions. They had to change. They had, they had been changed in such a way that was going to enable them to go through it. And so this was motivation that was critical for them, but it's also vital to us who want to live for Jesus Christ in a world where it's becoming more and more difficult to do so. So some people have walked in today and they said, well, that's a lot of scripture we're going to cover today, Pastor Dwayne. We're going to be here for like six hours, someone told me at the door. And I said, no, it's seven. We're going to be here for longer than that. You've misjudged. Okay? No, the truth is, no, we're, we can't do that. I, have, I do not have the stamina, and neither do you. Right? It doesn't count if you're listening with your eyes closed and sleeping. Okay? That's, you can do that, but I can't preach that way. Um, so we're going we're gonna to tour through this. All right? You know how it's like when you're on a tour and the guide, you're in, you're in the bus and you want to look at a few things. Oh, what's that? What's that? I, I would like to stop over there. And the bus driver won't stop. Okay? We're going to go through all of this, but we won't be able to land on everything the way you want to. Some of you are going to be disappointed. I'm going to be disappointed. There's things I want to dig into as well. But I want to cover all this from the perspective of change because that's where we're at. How does God deliver this kind of change to people that enable them to go through something like persecution? Okay, so if you're just new to this study with us, we have been doing this for a while. Uh, I, I don't always preach here, but when I have been preaching, um, I've been going to Peter a lot, and, and we've been looking at this letter. He's actually passed in front of us this longer train of thought, and we've been watching it roll by as we've been reading this letter, and we see now as we come to chapter four and then chapter five, these last few boxcars, if you will, of ideas, these themes that he's been going off of. Paul, Peter has been building on themes like salvation, which we talked about last week, suffering for Christ, holiness of the church, judgment, and love. And if you've been reading this book, if you've been studying with me, if you've kind of read ahead or read behind, these themes would be all familiar to you now. And uh, we, we don't have to go as deep into them at this moment. We've seen them before, and Peter has written great insights to encourage us as the church. So instead of just looking at all the thoughts, we can actually start to wonder, on what are all these thoughts running by us? What's carrying them? And we can look at the train and go like, well, what are, what are the tracks all about? And the tracks that are delivering this train to us is the grace of God. It's the grace of God that allows us to change. It's the grace of God that allows us to become different people, the kind of people we want to be instead of the people we've been. That's a gift from God. It's not something you can purchase. It's something you have to ask him for. It's something you have to receive. And it's delivered to us by grace. And with God's grace, ordinary people become extraordinary in the face of suffering for what they believe in. And we see here that these people who did not know Jesus at one time, who hadn't believed in him, have now come to a spot in their lives where they are able to endure the intensifying persecution that comes because they've put... They've taken his name as their own. I think verse 6, if we could come to one verse that would kind of, kind of make the point for all of them, we will read all of them together. But verse 6 in chapter 4 says this, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they have changed, that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Let me pray for you as we get into this. Father God, Again, thank you for the opportunity to worship and praise you this morning with, with our church. We're thankful for this second gathering. And Lord, I ask you again, thank you for those that have been praying. Lord, just ask that now you would speak to us and help me to deliver your word faithfully. 
And Lord, help us to receive what you have for us, that we might be changed, that we might cooperate with you according to your glory and for your joy. Amen. So it's Jesus thinking that motivates us to continue changing in the way he wants us to change, okay? So he's going to be our coach. At one point, I, I like to go through this, and if, uh, I just keep teaching how I study. So I always think about different things, and right now I'm thinking about Denzel Washington in, like, in, in encouraging a team, right? We're going to get some mental stuff here that will encourage us to live for Jesus. He is our mentor. He's the coach. So we have change as our goal, and Jesus is our mentor. We're going to look at three motivations this morning. The first one is this. Jesus thinking motivates me to live for more than my pleasure. Jesus thinking motivates me to live for more than my pleasure. Let's look at the first six verses to see how this plays out. I hope you can follow along with me in your Bible, but if you don't have one, go ahead and look at it on the screen. It says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So as I said before, suffering is a theme. We can't get away from this. It's easy to trace this suffering theme, this persecution theme, all throughout 1 Peter. It's one of those boxcars on the train that we see go by. So oh, there's that theme again. There's that boxcar again. But our focus is not right now on the suffering. It's on the gracious change that made these Christians dare to live faithfully in spite of the suffering they'd come for siding with Jesus. Their lives brought glory to God. And that's what I want my life to do. To do. I want my life to bring glory to God. Would you like your life to bring glory to God? Of course you would. Of course we want that to be the, the way our Christian lives go. And in this change, they were able to give up some of these extreme pleasures, things that people like, things that people enjoy, and they traded those pleasures for lasting joys, for eternal, eternal joys. And that kind of change requires more than your willpower. It's not a change that you can buy. It requires receiving grace from God. So I want us to learn how we cooperate with God to keep this grace flowing towards us. And Peter says, it's how we think. That first phrase in chapter 1 says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves is a picture word. It's, it's the idea of, of taking up like what a carpenter would do. A carpenter would take up all the essential tools for their day. Or if you're someone who likes backcountry camping, you would outfit yourself with everything that you need to survive, your tent, your water, all those things, the fire, all those things, because you know that it's only what you pack with you that's going to help you deal with the inevitable challenges that you will face when you're out there. So we need to pick up on Jesus' thinking. And as you go into the world, a world that's hostile to your faith, what thinking are you depending on? Are you thinking, are you trying to depend on your old way of thinking? Or are you going to depend on Jesus' way of thinking? Which will work better for you when it comes to lasting joy and glory? I assume that we'd all want to pick up on Jesus' thinking. We need to have that at the ready. We need to have that ready to go with us instead of stored away and out of reach. It needs to be on board. It needs to be in our hearts and in our minds 
because there's a distinct advantage to adopting Jesus' mentality. This is the key to our changing. Now, if we've been reading Scripture, we all know what kind of mentality Jesus had when it came to change. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. He, he led his life in such a way that he was not afraid to die for, his, for our Father. He saw that the ultimate fulfillment of his life was to bring glory to God. And he was fulfilled. He, he had pleasure in knowing that what he did brought pleasure to God. This was a big change. And he, just, he taught his disciples to think this way. And they taught it and lived it out for the church as an example to us. And this is remarkable. This is remarkable because all of this change is happening when they know that as they go towards Jesus, the world is going to push suffering towards them. And in this case, when we see the word suffering, even though it's not explicitly said, what is in mind here is the idea of martyrdom, the idea that some of the people in this church that was being written to, they would die because they held the name of Jesus Christ. So it's pretty serious. And to that idea, Paul, another, another disciple, another apostle, said this in Philippians 121, he said, for me to live is Christ, you know the rest, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul was living for much more than earthly pleasure. He was living for joy. It's a pleasure that makes no earthly sense apart from a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we hear about this again from Paul in Hebrews 12, chapter, chapter 12, verse 2 where he says about Jesus that it was for joy and glory that he endured the cross, that he despised its shame, and when it was all over after he had died, he rose again and he sat down beside his Lord in victory. So as we look at this from the perspective of grace that can change us, it's amazing what thinking like Jesus can help us do. When I think like Jesus, even while I'm suffering, even in the face of suffering, it says here in verse 1, which caught my attention so many years ago, that I'll cease from sin. See that? Whoever has suffered in the flesh, after adopting the way of thinking that Jesus has, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. As a young man, I get to say that now, <laughs> means something, <laughs> um, a younger man, I remember reading that. At a moment in my life where, where it seemed that, that I would never get to a point where I could control sin, that it seemed to have more of an effect on me than I had on it, and I didn't know how to change, and, and perhaps you've been there, perhaps you're still there, so you come to a passage like this, and you go like, wow, I can cease from sin? That, that can happen? That change is possible? How does that happen? What does that mean? Well, one thing I want to make sure you understand is that it doesn't mean you'll never sin again. That would be nice, never to make a mistake, never to do something wrong, never to get in trouble, but that's not what's promised here. It means that I'll behave according to Christ's character that is now growing in me, according to what he has planted in me, so that as I continue to mature in him, his change becomes more obvious. I do more and more of what he says and less and less of the things that I shouldn't do. So as Peter is talking and developing this passage, if you, keep, if you let your eyes go down, he's talking about lifestyle stuff, but really he has the holiness of the church in mind. So when he comes to talking about these things, he uses a bit of understatement. It's a, it's a little device here. And he says, for the time has passed, the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He's like, okay, that's enough of that stuff. That list that I'm not going to read again because of the little ears present and everything like that. I whispered to my son, there's a word in here that I get to say in a sermon today, but I'm only going to say it once. You can look for it now. Right? But all these things that are in that list, all this stuff that is now condemned, it's the picture here of people whose least concern, at least at the moment, they're least concerned about the holiness of God. 
These activities describe the world that we lived in, the world that we came from in contrast to the world and the kingdom that we serve now and the Jesus that we offer our lives to. We are now dedicated to God. That's the change in us. We're not dedicated anymore to overstuffing our lives, pursuing our physical pleasures. This reminds me that what we do with our bodies matters because your spiritual life is reflected in your physical activity. So if this is you, if this, anything in this list from, you know, that list of things that shall not be named, if that's you even a little bit, test your cravings for pleasure against your mental commitment to God. Because Jesus has given you his spirit, and his spirit now gives you the ability to see pleasure as a gift and not as a goal. Okay? Pleasure is a gift from God. We're meant to enjoy things, even physical things. Some of these things in this list are wonderful things when they're taken God's way. But it's not the goal, it's the gift. It's meant for us to, to enjoy to his glory. So more change can come for us when these various activities lose their appeal in light of the glory and joy that Jesus offers us. The description of all these behaviors is summarized as a flood of debauchery. That's a word that I didn't even know. I, I mean that, so I had to look it up. But what it makes, basically means is it's a straight-up condemnation of the excessive line-crossing and pleasure-seeking associated with totally missing the mark on holiness. I'm totally out of my element when it comes to talking about any of these things. It, uh, there's been a lot of change in me. But it seems to me that we all know people who take the party too far. Right? And if you look at this list, these people intentionally took the party too far all the time. Pleasure for them, it's fun, but it's actually an escape. It's a, it's a, it's, they use it to declare their own morality against the authority of the Lord. Pleasure becomes an identity. It becomes this right. I, I, I deserve pleasure above everything else. It's my way to unwind. Pleasure for people in this list is a way for them to pass the time together. And it became a way for them to build community, to, de to develop relationships around pursuing these things to their shame. And I'm not familiar with that. I'm sure that maybe you guys aren't as familiar as that and as perhaps we've been changed from that. But as I think about it, I try to think, what are, what are we picturing? It's not just ancient stuff. These things happen in our culture. So my mind goes to reports from Florida during college spring breaks, and the big party scenes that happen there. Or closer to home, Toronto, during the summer skin parades. This kind of revelry loves company. People love to get together and do this stuff. And, and some of us were like that. Some of us come from lives dedicated to that kind of stuff. But thankfully, graciously, mercifully, God brings us out of that. He saves people from that lifestyle and out of those relationships. And by his grace, he changes us by breaking that strong internal attraction we have to seeking our own pleasure above everything else. It's grace that helps us see that pleasing God is so much more important than whatever pleasure we receive from sinning against him. So let's stop and reflect on what we've just been reviewing let me ask you as you consider these passages and, and that part of particularly, what are you, what's your mentality when it comes to pleasure? What, what pleasures cause you to miss out on, on real joy and keep you out of participating in things that bring glory to God? What determines that you've spent enough time pursuing those things? Like, when do you decide that Netflix binging is done for the night? Is it 3 o'clock? 
4 a.m., it can't just be the clock on the wall that tells you pleasure's over. It has to be something internal. It can't just be the day of the week that's changed, that this is Sunday, so now I don't chase those things because I'm at church, but one church is over. It has to be something more, and that's why Jesus changes us as we come to him. He changes us so that we can live for more than our pleasure. That's the first motivation. The second one is this. Jesus' thinking motivates me to love beyond lip service. Now, I know what you're thinking. Where do you see lip service in the scriptures? Where is that phrase? Let me help you see it. Go to chapter 4 again in 1 Peter, verse 7. Let's read these together. The end of all things is at hand. It doesn't sound very nice. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter has a way of writing. It's pretty cool. It takes us right to God all the time. So as this section opens up, we can see how Peter prompts us to think like Jesus. He writes about self-control, which is the idea of mental discipline. He writes about being sober-minded and prayer-focused right there in verse 7. And Jesus set that example for his disciples and the church all the time. It might sound a little weird to say it this way, but Jesus had a strong mental connection with his father. Normally when we talk about our connections with God, we like to say we have a spiritual connection with God. But there's no difference. When we, when we love God totally, we love him with our heart and our soul, our mind and our strength. So it doesn't really matter. We're talking about having a devotion to him, a love that goes deep. And so if I say that I have a heart for my wife and my kids, you know that it means that I think about them a lot. That I, that I think about what they're doing and where they are. And, and, I, and I, when I'm going to try to do something else, I want to be thinking of them first. And it's the same if we want to say that we're, we have a heart or a love for God in everything in every way, then it means that we have to think about him first, also in everything in every way. Otherwise, when we pray to our God without thinking, it might as well be that we're just flapping our lips like this. Amen. There's nothing behind those words. And when it comes to professions of love, if we start making those without thinking about the people, the brothers and sisters that we love in Jesus' name, they become shallow statements of flattery. Hey, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. And without thinking about people, they become empty promises of care that we never intend on following through. Our words without integrity to loving action are just lip service. I love you. Doesn't mean anything without thinking about it. And here's the problem. Lip service can't and doesn't help anyone going through a tough time because of their faith. But sincere prayer can help you and sincere love can help them. So out of that, Peter tells us that above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He says that in verse 8. And love covering sins is an interesting phrase and I want to stop the tour bus right there and take a look at that one. Because we might go like, well, wait, wait a second. Wait a second, Pastor Dwayne. What are you talking about when you say cover sins? Right now, the church is in trouble around the world because they've been covering sin. That doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like we should be covering up anything. 
I mean, isn't it more loving to expose sin? Shouldn't we be keeping people accountable? And, and by all means, yes, we absolutely want to be kept accountable. As leaders in the church, we do want to be kept accountable for sin. We're, we can't be hiding sin. We can't be pretending sin doesn't happen. And certainly we can't call what is sinful good and, and expect to get away with that. But I want to assure you that that's not what's happening here. Peter's not asking us to cover up sin. He's asking us to do something else. So my question as we look at this is, Whose sin then is covered when we love others above all? Whose sin is covered when we love others above all? It's a possible interpretation that loving others makes up for my sins or, or that when you love someone else, when you do something kind for another person, when you help them out, uh, we use people in the front row all the time. So John here, he's a cook for us. He cooks for the men. And when he cooks, he cooks well and he's loving the guys. So maybe when he cooks and gives us like, 10 burgers or something like that, or 100 burgers or 500 burgers, God forgives 500 of your sins, right? I would need to make a lot more burgers than that, okay? Some people think that as, as we love others, we, we do that, and God gives us something back. Hey, you know, I'll knock a couple of your sins off. But that's not what we should be thinking. That's the way some Jewish people think in the world uh, back in the Bible times. That's the way some other religions think, but that's not right because Jesus loved people earnestly, and when I think about Jesus' love, his love didn't cover his own sins. He didn't have any sins. So whose sins are covered by love? When I think about Jesus, I realize that when he loves me, he, his love covered my sins. His love covers my sins, and his love covers the sinful things that have happened to me, particularly in light of the world that has heaped abuse on me as a Christian particularly in a world where I've participated in things where, where I shouldn't receive love, Jesus' love covers a multitude of sins. And it, by his grace, and because of his love, he's changed us so that we can be people that do this for others. Jesus' thinking takes us well beyond the platitudes of I love you, or in our case, pronouncing, hey, you are loved at the end of the service as lip service. For example, when Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house, that short little tax collector, thief guy, you know him from the scriptures, right? People didn't like him very much, but Jesus went to his house. And when he did that, he was covering over a multitude of sins, both Zacchaeus' sins as a thief, but also the sins of all those people that rejected him, that despised him, that called him names, that spurned the idea of Jesus even hanging out with them. Jesus' love for Zacchaeus shocked his morally conservative crowd, and, and shocked all those that thought that, hey, this guy doesn't belong here. And what we see in that moment with Jesus and Zacchaeus is that Jesus' love is offered to everyone, and Jesus' love can change anyone. Jesus' love, Jesus doesn't just say he loves people. He fully means it, and he fully demonstrates it. And therefore, when he changes us, he changes us in such a way that we are able to show his love and go far beyond just saying it. This change enables us to minister to each other despite the struggles we face out there. We can come to church and, and begin to offer that kind of love covering over multitudes of sins to each other. So in this passage, we also saw a couple exhortations. One exhortations, one was to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And the other was to use our gifts, other things that God has given us in grace, to serve one another and to speak for one another in a way that shows how much we want to glorify God and how much we actually love each other like Jesus does. And I love that as we have this sermon, we're going into high five. 
Because when we do high five as a church, we are showing this kind of love to families, believing families, families for who it has become a lot harder to be Christians. It's very difficult for us as now with our kids to be teaching them about the love of Jesus, about the truth that's in the word, and then have to send them into a culture, into a school, or, or into a community, into media that kind of takes away everything else, that says, well, that's not true. It's rough. And so when we open up the doors for a high five, we are covering over a multitude of sins, not just for the sins of those little kids. Yes, they do sin. But also, and mostly because they now live in a world in which so much sin is, is shown to them. So much sin is around them. So much sin is, is taught to them as something that is good. And so next week, we're going to have volunteers. Many of you are participating in that. You will be the ones that are practicing hospitality without grumbling. And you will be the ones that are using your speaking gifts and your serving gifts to give honor and glory to God as you serve them. So where did Peter pick up this idea of love covering a multitude of sins? It comes from Proverbs. I love to get the Bible study part in here. So Proverbs 10, chapter 12, uh, chapter 10, verse 12, that originally said, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Peter knew a lot of scripture. And I think what he has in mind here is he's thinking about a world, this world that was hostile to his, his believing church, that hated them for their faith, that stirred up strife in their life, that made it difficult for them to walk with Jesus. And now he was thinking about the, his church, those people coming together like we do on a Sunday and covering over all those offenses that we face out there and making this a place a tent, a place like a refuge, refugee camp where they offer you a blanket if you've been treated coldly or they put a Band-Aid on your wounds if you've been beat up by the world. That's what church is supposed to be, a place where all the offenses of the world that hates us are covered by the love we have for one another. So this is not a statement about covering up scandals, but taking care of each other well in light of a world that heaps abuse upon believers. Peter reminds us that real brotherly love is demonstrated by how we treat each other in light of the world that is hostile to faith. Caring for each other, ministry to each other, welcoming one another in the church is not going to be based on how much we like each other, but how much we need each other. We don't want to let the challenges of, of living for Jesus discourage us from serving him when we get here. So I hope there's nothing that's keeping you from serving this church. I hope there's nothing keeping you from practicing hospitality, hospitality in this church. I hope there's nothing that's keeping you from speaking into someone's life in love because of the way people are treating you for your faith out there. We need you to serve. We need you to love. We need you to practice hospitality. We need all those things. And I realize that we don't always do this well. I'm sure we want to. But we don't always do it well. And a sermon point doesn't really capture our heart to obedience in this. So I'm thankful that we have poets and musicians to lean on. And, and here's how one of them, Zach Williams, puts it for us. I want to read this to you. It'll be on the screen. Oh, I have days that I lose the fight. I try my best, but just don't get it right. Where I talk a talk that I don't walk and miss the moments right before my eyes. Somebody with a hurt that I could have helped Someone with a hand that I could have held. When I just can't see past myself, Lord, help me be. A little more like mercy. A little more like grace. A little more like kindness, goodness, love, and faith. A little more like patience. A little more like peace. A little more like Jesus. A little less like me.
That's the motivation that helps us love people beyond lip service. There's one more in the last passage. Motivation number three, then, is that Jesus' thinking motivates me to last through my fiery trial. I want to look now at verse 12 in chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised. That's the mental cue here. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify in that name. For it is the time of judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if righteousness is, scare, if righteous is scarcely, scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's a heavy part. It doesn't finish on an easy note for us. And again, we've been looking at these themes, these familiar thoughts, seeing this persecution, not for, for persecution theme, not for the first time here, but now we're going to look and see how Jesus has changed the church to face this level of persecution. And my fear for us as we look into this passage is that we, we look from a comfortable spot, a comfortable environment, which, which may, makes, makes this seem irrelevant to our situation. Our grace from God is that we live in a time and place that is still founded on Christianity. Yes, it's decidedly beyond that now. We are post-Christian, maybe even in some situations anti-Christian. And so we have every generation of church Christians hearing from the one before it to pay attention. They pass along a warning. A time is coming where things will not be so easy for the church. And if that happens in our time, Peter will have us ready. He warns us in this section to not be surprised at the difficulty. He says we should anticipate it. It's how Jesus taught Peter to think. Jesus taught his disciples saying in John 15, 18 to 20, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's difficult. There's nothing easy about that word to us. And in a sense, Peter's showing us that, hey, this is the way it's going to be with Jesus, who is the Lord of your life. You're going to live for Jesus. And some people, maybe a lot of people at some point will react to that decision, your faith, really poorly, aggressively, rudely. One of the commentaries said that in preparation for this, we should think this way. The fact that unbelievers are surprised at our behavior of following Jesus Christ does not mean that you should be surprised at theirs for rejecting you for doing that. Those words of surprise are in here. It's the mental idea that we need to understand. We need to be prepared for, for this rejection of our faith. We need to be prepared for people to press back on us as we press Jesus forward into our culture. So what is the underlying change that prepares us to face this kind of fire? Graciously, God gives us conviction. 
He, he does something in your heart. He does something in your mind. He does something to make you believe that this is all true and that you know it's true so that as you face all these difficulties, when everything comes against you for what you believe and you have done nothing wrong, you can stand there in your faith and say, but I'm choosing God and I'm leaving what you're offering me behind. It doesn't matter what you say to me. It doesn't matter what you do to me. It doesn't matter what you say about me. I'm going to continue in this walk of faith. That's a conviction. That's a gift. You can't buy that. It comes from God as grace to you. And I want you to believe that when your time comes, God will supply that to you. So would you, for Jesus' sake, prepare now for the day when we too have to face and suffer persecution? We don't want to be like people who get surprised by this. The word surprise is another picture word. It's, it's the idea of a person who drops in on someone unannounced. I'm that guy. I don't like to call ahead. That'll give you the chance to be like, oh, I'm not there. So I just want to show up. Hey, how are you doing? I'm here, right? And in that culture, that was, that you wanted to be ready for those kind of guests. That's the kind of culture my parents came from. I asked my mom, why do we always have so much food in the fridge? She says, well, we never know when someone's coming by. Right? And, and that's the idea. We want to be ready for these things. They're, they shouldn't show up like an unwelcome visitor that sends us into a panic. It shouldn't be like, there's persecution. Ah! Right? We need to be ready. We, we, we want to be ready for when this shows up. The fiery trial that's going to come gives us reason, Peter says now, to prepare us. It gives us reason to rejoice, the scripture says, because it's going to prove to the world that we belong to Jesus. There will be no doubt about your faith if you go through something difficult and come out holding Jesus' hand the way you did when you went into it. Persecution of the church, while it's hard to deal with, also purifies the church. That's why it's called a fiery trial, not just because of the pain that we go through, but because of what fire does when it tests something. It reveals its worth. It, it, it takes away the chaff, and it makes it obvious where real faith and the value of real faith is. But in order for all that to happen, we have to last through the trial. And that's why Peter has written all this. All these 19 verses are meant to coach us to think like Jesus through the times of persecution because a judgment is coming on the world for its sin. And so in that world, your trials are going to be different. They won't be exactly like the people who face these here. They'll be different. Persecution is a definitive test of faith, but it's not the only test of faith that this life gives us. Our faith can be revealed as genuine or false when we lose a job, when we get bad news from the doctor, when we move far away from a community that supported our faith or people in the community that we love move far away from us and we're, we're struggling. These moments can undo us spiritually and they tend to come without any invitation, but they do come to us. They come to every one of us as a test. And so even if you don't see your fiery trial is persecution. I want you to think of what those things that come against you for your faith, not because you've done something wrong, but the things that you struggle through because you stand up for Jesus. I want you to think about those things the way Peter thinks about them. Think of them as testing that refines your faith and reveals your devotion to God. And to last through that, we need to cultivate the same kind of thinking that we heard Jesus offer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's there that we heard him say this, Father, take this cup of suffering from me. We knew it wasn't something that Jesus wanted. He didn't welcome all that happened, but he was prepared for it. He was ready for it. And that's why he's able to say, yet not as I will, 
but as you will, your will be done. So let's reflect on what we've been reviewing here. In this particular instance, Jesus' example was to pray before he was betrayed. He, he started going to God before his suffering even happened. So let me ask you, what is your mentality about hardships and suffering that you're going to go through? And when they come, do your reactions to the trials that you're going through suggest that you actually anticipated them? That you're like, are you acting like, oh, I never saw this coming. I never believed this would happen. And in terms of your prayer life, are you praying before your trials because you have an active relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Or does it take a trial to get you praying again? One way we're ready, the other one we're just responding to the stress. I know this is heavy. I said to my friend that I feel like I, I pushed the first service down. It's not my fault. Peter said all these things. He's not coming alongside us this morning with a warm hug. He's not saying everything will go all right because he knows there's a painful trial ahead for his church. And we know that things can get worse for us. And for Peter, it was personal. He had to wrestle with the fact that Jesus called him to die. You can read that in the in Gospel of John. He was going to die as a result of his faith. Meeting Jesus had changed Peter forever. It changed the course of his life. He was a fisherman who became a disciple. And then he was a disciple who became an apostle and an elder in the church. Jesus had renamed Peter. His original name was Simon, but when Simon met Jesus, Jesus renamed him and called him Peter for faith. Faith that hadn't even been displayed at that time in his life. And Jesus changed Peter by calling him to give his life for the sake of the church. Now, none of this was possible by Peter's willpower. In fact, when Peter tried to do things according to his, his will, he failed miserably. He couldn't stand up for Jesus when he tried to do it on his own. It was only possible because Jesus changed Peter's life. And here's what I want us to understand, kind of going back to that first chart I, I showed you. Change doesn't come to us because we invest everything in God as though, hey, now I've given you everything, you have to give me everything back. In fact, what God gives us comes without us making any investment at all. Change comes because God invests himself in us through Jesus Christ. He changed Peter. He's changing me. That's my testimony to you. And I pray that you'll let him to continue to change you for the better. Let me pray for you. Father, I want to thank you for your word and the warning that it gives us. It's, it's not easy to hear these things. It's not easy to know that there could be a time in our lives where we're going through it, Lord. And it's even harder to understand that maybe in this room, even though we are kind of in a refuge in a place where we're covered for a few moments, protected from what can happen to us out there. Lord, people might be going through things, stuff that's hard to talk about, because they believe, because they've chosen you as Lord and Savior and, and are committed to following your way. Lord, I'm praying that as we look at Peter and, and just scratch the surface on these things, but also because we've been faithful to read what Peter said, I pray you'll be preparing us 
for when our trials come, that we, we might respond not with fear or surprise or panic, but that we could respond having been prepared to glorify you. Lord, in my prayer is that you would change me the same way I want you to change other people. But Lord, start with me. I, I need to love beyond my pleasures for something more than just pleasure. I need to live for that. I need to love people beyond lip service so that, Lord, that it's obvious to all that as a church, we really care, we're compassionate, that we're going to do things, we're going to be there for one another. We need each other in this church. And finally, Lord, I pray that you'd help us last, as we've been talking about, through a fiery trial. I don't know what's on everybody's hearts, but I know you do, and I pray that you'll give them strength, Lord. Embolden them. Fill them with great conviction to live for you. That's the change we desire. And thank you for it coming to us in your grace and in your name that we pray. Amen.